This episode of Bibliophiles is brought to you by the Bookening Podcast. Ever wonder why Shakespeare gave his wife his second best bed? Or why every high school boy should read Jane Austen? Then the Bookening is the Christian podcast about literature for you. It's fun, it's smart, and you might even learn a thing or two. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, along with my beloved family, otherwise known as the Center for Lit crew, my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. Hi, guys. Let's do it again, shall we? Great question. Great question on the docket for today. Uh, I'm going to put the question to you in its baldest form. It goes (laughs) like this. Art or artifact? This is the question when reading and thinking about great literature, the great books of the Western tradition. Here's what I mean by the question. You probably can figure it out just by that pithy little statement. But when we're reading a a time-honored classic, it has generally been written in another time, some other time than ours, generally in another place. And the question of how elementally it springs from that time and place and how important the details of the time and place of that story are for our proper understanding of it. That's the question I want to probe today and see what you guys think about it. And and here's here's the situation that we stand in when we are reading a great book. On the one hand, it is, since it has been handed down to us and cherished to the breast of the human race for lo these many centuries, it is handed to us as a, a transcendent work of art that speaks across the ages, right? That says something timeless and universal. On the other hand, it was written by someone who lived at a particular time and in a particular place, and the vicissitudes of that time and place have bearing on the shape that that art form finally took, and maybe even have bearing on what it said and to whom. So the question is, which of those two factors, which of those two elements of a work of art should predominate when we try and understand it correctly? Is it primarily a work of art or is it primarily an artifact? What say you, Center for Lit Crew? Well, can I jump in and speak for all of us in saying that it must be a combination of both of those things? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Undue amounts of time. Talking about how it's got to be both. I mean, we let's just start there as a basic assumption and then maybe talk about some of the pitfalls. What do you think? Well, fair enough, except I have talked with people who say, for example, you must read a great work of art completely without reference to its context. In that other words, the, as art instead of artifact? Yes, as art instead of artifact. The fact that it was written in the 8th century BC by a blind poet has nothing to do with its glory as a work of transcendent human art are you are you talking about the historical context of the work or specifically the author because i feel like those are 
they're related, but different questions. I, I had, bo- if I understand you right, I had both of those questions in mind, but go ahead and explain what you mean by their difference. Well, if it's the historical context, then I don't understand how you could, it must be that your goal isn't understanding the work of art, because how could you possibly understand, for example, Huckleberry Finn without knowing the premises under which American slavery took place, as opposed to, say, Roman slavery? There are differences that gave rise to those kinds of slaveries, which which are the reasons Twain wrote the piece in the first place. So, so the context, or not the context, but the dialogue and the arrangement of characters and action in the story is not really going to make sense all the way down to the bottom, unless you understand the American situation. And even more right. than, more, maybe not more than that, but in addition to that, um, the issue of when Twain wrote the work, um, the fact that it was written um, after the Emancipation Proclamation was was also written, is significant in our understanding of what he might have been trying to say. Uh-huh. The fact that it's set in the 1830s, but it was written in the 1880s yes. after the constitutional amendments outlawing slavery has bearing on what he's really, what he really means. Yes. Here's my, I guess my, the first thing that pops to mind is a question for me. What is, what is the point of excluding any discussion of artifact from the conversation? What are we hoping to gain by saying it's exclusively art? You know, I don't think we gain much at all by doing that, but there was a movement. That's not quite what I asked. I, I might even agree with you. I mean, um, what does the movement say that does exclude artifact? I think that the idea in the movement away from the artifact um, answer came in the mid-1900s because for a long time, critical theory was leaning towards the art-as-artifact argument. They basically reduced literature to nothing more than um, philology, you know, um, studies of word origin and um, historical, intellectual history in particular. Um, this is representative of the mind of this particular period of history, and this intellectual trend is obvious here. You know what I mean? Um, and it it took it wrenched away from the art the opportunity to see universal the universal experience of man, right? By locating it so completely, anchoring it so completely to a, an intellectual period of history. Um, you can rob the art of its opportunity and its potential to affect not only men in, in their time and the author's time and place, not only his immediate audience, but a universal audience that lived long past it. Oh, so the almost like say art. Go ahead. Art Ian. should be something besides artifact. Are merely trying to protect its ability to speak universally. I think so. At yeah. least I think that's one of the. Um, one of the problems that people that were responding to that art as artifact issue were trying to address. If you if you take the, the thing that Emily and I were saying a minute ago too far, you come to the conclusion that Mark Twain could have done nothing else but write a novel about American slavery in this particular idiom with this particular point. He was, artistically speaking, determined by the forces of his time and place. And Huckleberry Finn is what the 19th century offered any writer doing it would have offered more or less the same thing. It's kind of a deterministic way of looking at it if you go too far in the direction of artifact. And mm. I think that's probably the, um, that's what, what people who stress the art side are reacting against. But at the same See, time, the, the, it, 
if you do wrench, if you wrench an artistic piece away from its origins, like Emily suggested, you really do violence to to a reader's ability to to come to terms with an author, you know, to really see what's going on here. It's necessary to first read. Um, okay, if we were taking a work of poetry, one of the things that we teach is that first you teach a student to read a poem literally. And until he does so and understands the literal poem, he cannot begin or hope to understand its figurative meaning. Aren't you kind of doing likewise if you kind of cut the cords that bind the author from the text, right? Or the text mm. from its period. And now you're looking at it as a freeform work of art and um, you can't really come to terms with the author to see what kind of universals he was even presenting in that regard. We say so you. let me let me dig a little bit because it sounds like we're we're all assuming a couple of things that are laying underneath the conversation that might offer some clarity. First of all, that's not the only explanation I've ever heard for um, pursuing understanding literature as artifact instead of art. Um, that's not the only argument I've heard against that. Rather. Um, okay. The one that I've heard the most frequently is, how dare you reduce a work to some sort of syllogism that you can ferret out by means of knowing who the author was and where he was born and what his historical circumstances were. In other words, bringing in the details about the work of art as an artifact allows you to strip it of its wonder and its mystery, which is the primary draw of a work of art from this perspective, wonder and mystery, and allows you to um, do a surface level reading and assume that you have successfully grappled with the whole text. Right. And, and from that perspective, saying it's a work of art instead of an artifact is an attempt to actually protect the deep value of grappling. I guess that. If, yeah, if you're that saying sense. the same thing. It I... like you're, hold on. What it sounds like you're saying is looking at the work as artifact allows you to protect the deep value of grappling. And the other guy says, yeah, me too. That's why I was kind of trying to get us to understand what are the drawbacks are on either side of this issue. I see where you yeah. were going. Initially, when we were talking about why do the people that um, loathe the idea of art as artifact want to separate the art from its origins, and I think you're exactly right. You've articulated it very well. They want to retain the wonder. That is, they want to retain the universal element that transcends the time and place in which it was written. But I think that... Um, with the rise of postmodernism, this this argument may be turning around a little bit because the postmodernists, the deconstructionists, want to say that who the author was and what he meant has nothing to do with it. What's that right. got to do with anything? Um, they they want Bainton's the death of the author, right? Let's kill the author. The art itself is the only thing that 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 matters, and it means whatever we decide it. Can, can mean, you know, we can play fast and loose with the text and whatever we bring in terms of our experience and our culture to the text, that's what it means. I, I guess I don't really see how that is, how that is possible, how such a, um, a divorcing of a work from its context is possible if we do what you said a minute ago and give things a literal reading first. Mm -hmm, I agree. I'm, 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 the, I'm, I'm participating in Circe's Close Reads podcast right now, and we're reading The Great Gatsby together, which was written in 1925, set in 1922 in New York City during the time of the Roaring Twenties and the, the debauched era that that time is famous for. It's completely impossible to conceive of any universal truth 
or any sort of artistic expression that transcends time and place that doesn't spring directly from the Roaring Twenties. It is the, it's the idiom he's speaking in. It's the point he's trying to make. Anything, that, anything universal is an implication of something very, very rooted in a time and place. So I'm not sure how you would go about divorcing those two things. Well, of course, it, that all occurs in the setting of that particular book. Right. I'm, yeah, I was going to say when it comes to understanding the literal language, I'm thinking about Shakespeare and when he says he talks about this O, like we're in this great O. And unless we understand that he's he's talking about the globe, right, the actual theater in mm -hmm. which they're performing, which were built in the O shape, then how we can't jump from there to contemplating universal ideas and his meditations on nothingness unless we understand the literal language yes. that he's talking about, which has a historical, you have to understand the historical meaning behind that to get to his ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So would you, would you say, would you agree with that as well, Ian? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, um, well, I, I guess like I've been hedging at all along here, I think that there are, um, ditches on either side of this conversation. Yes, and um, usually when this, and, and I'll call, I'll call him out my dear, my dear buddy, David Kern over at the Cersei Institute, when we have this conversation, we generally come at it each from our own ditch. And we conclude by assuming that the other guy means well and, 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 uh, and just part ways as friends. <laughs> I think we're fighting from two ditches and the ditch on the artifact side is treating a work of art as a syllogism of some kind that's intended to, because a plus B equals C communicate a rote truth and, and conceiving of the reading project as finding out what that rote truth is and saying that it can be found out because we can do some digging on the author and find the ways in which his work is autobiographical and find the ways in which his history is strewn throughout his literature and call it good. That's the ditch on that side. The ditch on the other side is we don't need the author at all in order to interpret meaning of any kind because the work itself continues to speak after he is dead. In other words, the work is, and I'm, I'm talking about a ditch here, right? I'm exaggerating. Right, right. The work itself is animated. It mm -hmm. has a soul. It speaks. Mm -hmm. No, it flipping doesn't. You know what? I, so... so <laughs> I feel like we have to be talking about a middle of the road somewhere because both of those are patently ridiculous. It, th there must be a mixing of the two. Well, so I absolutely. guess it becomes how do we mix them and what's the right order to do them in and what particular thing are we trying to defend by mixing them correctly? In other words, what's good what reading? What are the goals? This person yeah, affect yeah, right. yeah. That, we have to be very clear about what our goals are. What are we going for when we sit down mm -hmm. to read a book? What do we think the benefits of reading actually might be? Yeah. You know, and yeah. if it's not engagement in the in a universal conversation that was going on before us and that will be going on after us about the stuff of humanity and the eternal things what's it all for anyway? But even, but so even when you time. put it that way, you combine both of the elements of both of those ditches, yes, as Ian said, yes, what you course. say is what we're going for is some universal experience of a great conversation that was going on before us. 
at other times and places. Yes. And it's the it's the seeing of that conversation happening in ancient Rome or happening in colonial New England or happening in New York City in the 1920s that gives it its universal quality. There's a sense that... in which, if you just a second, there's a sense in which a, an idea is not universal unless it exists separately in a bunch of different places. Yes, mm-hmm. and I think the, the fact that it has been going on for a long time and will be going on after we're all gone... Um, is one of the things that makes it a robust conversation. Yeah. You know, it's one of the benefits of it to us because it lifts us out of our, our immediate time and place and puts our own experience in context. Yeah, in, right. In a broader framework. So if we go towards the um, uh, this thing that we have in our hands is history ditch, then we can very easily decide to remove a bunch of books from the um, the canon like, for example, mm. there have been movements to remove Huckleberry Finn from the canon or Canterbury Tales or To Kill a Mockingbird because it no longer reflects a modern consciousness or sensibility, right? We dismiss and silence generations of people simply because they aren't present with us here today. Um, if we go the other direction, uh, and then we efficiently divorce the art from the artist, then it's not human anymore in large part. You know, we're no longer considering art, the communication of one human being with others. And we once again cut ourselves off from um, any conversation besides besides our own. Right. You know, we just hear our own voice coming back at us over and over again. Here's here's the tricky thing, though. And I think this is this is where the art as art instead of artifact people have a leg to stand on and have a point to make is that. you and and your experience and your maturity level and the the boundaries of your own knowledge and the boundaries of your own reading experience in other places. I mean, we're talking about a universal great conversation that's been articulated in a million different works. Mm-hmm. I've read some of them and not others, just like you have. Mm-hmm. And so I have different sets of tools with which to engage that conversation. And so my experience of a book that you and I have both read that we hold in common mm-hmm. is going to be different from oh, yours. Definitely. This is how different readings develop, right? And so in some senses, a book's meaning does grow and change based on the experience that a reader is having with it and based on who that person is. The book doesn't change and what it has to offer doesn't change. change. But I said I said that there's there is more or less or different meaning contained in it as you approach it at different times in your life. Your experience with the book changes as you approach it at different times of your life. I That's can go good. with you there. That's certainly true because you become more a more mature reader given your own life content and your own experiences. I think, uh, um, you know, two different people, an, old, an older person who's been reading all their life and a very young reader who hasn't read much yet will read War and Peace, and they both will have read the same classic, but they will understand mm-hmm. it to differing degrees. The one will will understand so much more of the humanity that's involved in it. Um, y- you know, depending on who that adult reader is, you know, it, there might be an adult reader who's reading merely for story and another adult reader. Same day and have been alive for exactly the same number of years who are from different countries and who speak in different idioms. You know, reading or how book. about come from different careers? One's a historian and the other one uh, is, is more a, a, a student of psychology or a, a lover right. of romance novels. You mm-hmm. know, they're going to read um, for different reasons and probably yeah. come away from that very rich novel with multi-strands, multi-facets, with um, different, with different appreciation. Right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Different thematic emphases, sure. But that doesn't in any way say that those things aren't already contained within the novel and that if a reader, if a reader were able to uh, read with greater understanding, they might be able to, uh, to combine those two readings in some way. Okay, the question is, though... Um, the the question book is, doesn't change, is what I'm saying. The reader changes. The question for our purposes is, how, how much does a, an understanding of the history of the period that produced the book affect a proper understanding? That would be, that would be an application of this idea that's relevant to today's discussion. Does knowing more about early 19th century Russia help you understand better what war and peace actually means? Well, certainly. I John Lukash actually said. spoke to this question talking about the study of history in that um, he talks about how when people try to formulate ideas or philosophies without their particulars, just a generalized form, um, this is when we have terrible things happen in history, like fascism and Nazism. Um, they're they're hmm. detached from their particulars. But all ideas actually grow out of, all universals grow out of their particulars. And it's the fact that it has played out over history from multiple perspectives and in multiple times and multiple contexts that makes it grow and become a universal thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this pertains to the study of literature too. It's the fact that it's a, you are a particular person coming into contact with a particular other person, an author, mm -hmm. a work, um, and it's the meeting of those particulars that give rise to the universal, the great conversation. And yes. so you have to respect the particular of the work as much mm. as you respect the particular of the person reading it. Yes, mm. absolutely. Agreed. There's an interesting implication of what you're saying, Emily, which is that in order for the particulars of Leo Tolstoy in 19th century Russia and the particulars of Adam Andrews in 21st century America to mean anything to each other, there must be some sort of transcendent list of particulars and their relationships to universals that mm -hmm. persists, at least persists between 19th right. century and Russia and 21st century North America, right? You wouldn't be able to relate to or be moved by Leo Tolstoy if he wasn't writing from a particular, if he didn't write from what was happening in his own time, it wouldn't it wouldn't be meaningful. It would be detached. It has well, to be anchored in its particular. And the particulars themselves lend credibility to the concept of universal, right? If there weren't a series of particulars anchoring each of us to our own time and place and personality and, and individual experience, there would be no way to acknowledge a universal that bound us all together, right? Hmm. Hmm. It wouldn't be much worth calling a universal. Yes. If it was, wasn't applicable to more than one particular. Mm -mm. We so, notice a universal because it arises out of particulars and resonates across generations, right? So without the particulars themselves, we would not be able to see that resonating thread. It wouldn't be visible. Hmm. So if, if, if Harper Lee says something from 1960s Southern America that resonates in our hearts in some way similar to uh, the way it did when we read the Iliad, for example, that would bear witness to the existence of something beyond us, mm -hmm. outside us, that has its being in both of those very different particulars. And what you're suggesting is that 
the grounding of the Iliad in ancient Greece and the grounding of To Kill a Mockingbird in modern America uh, is essential for that process to happen. Well, I certainly think so. Yeah, I think um, but conversation between the generations becomes impossible through literature if you fall in either one of those ditches. And really, a, a combination of both of those um, elements have to, have to be um, present in good reading. But I'm a historian by training and inclination. And so I will confess that I'm th- seeing myself more clearly at the end of this conversation than at the beginning. I think I err in the direction of the, of the artifact ditch. And I, I tend to see that the Great Gatsby's meaning, for example, springs organically from the intellectual problem of the 1920s and that it would be unintelligible in any other context. Um, am, I too f- am I too far off center to say no, that? Ian, Ian so. what do you think? I don't think so, because the, the conversation that, uh, that undergirds this entire thing is a conversation about meaning and where it comes from. Um, there's got to be, objectively, a false reading of a work if we are going to be capable, like you were saying, Mom, a second ago, of communicating across the ages with one another. Mm-hmm. Language has to mean something particular, and the meaning of that language can't be malleable, right. and that can't change. And so we're left to assume that we got to be getting the meaning from somewhere. And I think that's where the artifact side of things really is important to understand. Like you were saying, Dad, the issues of the Great Gatsby spring from that historical period. And I think we need to be getting our source of of meaning and our framework for understanding that text from the actual man himself, Fitzgerald, who lived in an actual place and time with all of those particulars. And it would be silly to get it from anywhere else. So given that... What do we do about the fact that a guy 100 years from now is going to have a very different experience with The Great Gatsby than either I or the guy that read it when Fitzgerald published it back then? That's not a problem. I think that's a beauty. Isn't that the thing that throws us back again and again into The Great Conversation? Because that is what binds us together in our humanity, which is not um, limited by time and place and culture. Right? Right. It bears witness to the fact. The great books bear witness to the fact that there is, there is meaning to the fact that, that when we say we are human beings, we mean something. Right? Mm-hmm. And when Homer was writing and he was talking about what it meant to be human, even as we read the differences in culture and all of the things that are so foreign to us, in the midst of all of that, humanity crawls off the page in waves. You know, and Mm -hmm. we, even though we're separated by so many years and our cultures are so dramatically different, we empathize. Mm -hmm. We enter into conversation about what it means to be a human being, about what marriage actually is, about things like fidelity and, um, and patriotism and so on and so forth. Hospitality, we, we could go on and flesh out the different um, big ideas in that in that one text. But it's that issue of what it means to be a human on this globe, what the human experience might be, what trouble human beings encounter. That is what makes us continue to read Homer today. And I would say that about all, about all classics. So we're going to have to bring to the equation 
a studiousness when we read a great book that, that we're separated by vast amounts of time and culture, right? We're going to have to be students in order to first hear the author so that we can discover those things that are truly humane, that are truly universal. Does that mean, guys, and Emily, maybe I want to put this question to you since you're a historian too, does that mean that we need to be historians? Does that mean that a, a thorough understanding of Tolstoy or or Hawthorne requires historical knowledge? Do you have to be able to put it into its historical context in order to experience it fully? I'm sorry, I've been reading a lot of Lukash, so I'm going to use him to answer this question again. Right on. <laughs> but one of the beauties about literature is that it it is a man reflecting on the concerns of his time. And it's so... Uh, Lukash would say that it isn't when you're studying history, it isn't just what happened that's important. It's what people think happened that is equally as important. And that can be wrong, that you can have a wrong perspective on what happened and everyone will have different perspectives on what happened. And so when you're reading The Scarlet Letter or you're reading The Great Gatsby, um, To Kill a Mockingbird is more appropriate because she's actually writing about things of her own time but we're getting her perspective on the things that happened. And so, yes, you should have a cursory knowledge of the time period, but you don't have to have a scholastic knowledge of it because really what's important is Harper Lee's perspective on the things that happened. Fitzgerald's uh, point of view on the 1920s is the key detail of yes. the 1920s, not some historic, some historically accurate list of events necessarily, right? Right, and the extent to which he he's providing us with his perspective of what happened is the extent to which it becomes universal that that he is reflecting on events and his reflection is is the spirit that um that that animates it that makes it part of something that's relatable to well, it us. makes it his but, contribution to yeah. the subject matter right because he in addition to being a citizen of america in the 1920s is also an eternal soul mm-hmm. right because he's a human we're getting a human's perspective on what happened and that's just going to necessarily be universal because he'll reflect on how it connects to what being a human is and that isn't to say that his own experience and his interpretation of it is accurate Right, I think Emily was alluding to that just a second ago. Yes, that authors can be wrong about their about their time period, which even their own the, time period. Which is one of the things that makes the conversation, reading the conversation, so rich, right? It mm-hmm. not every great book tells tells you the truth or accurately interprets reality. I once had a history professor who said, "When you read the Federalist Papers, um, they don't give you a, a picture of." Um, late 18th century America, as much as they give you a picture of what the writers thought about late 18th century America. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's yeah. I mean, the, the, the great books are Clifton Fadiman said that they were equal parts, truth and um, falsehood. And that sometimes the ones that articulate a falsehood are even more important th- than the ones that articulate a truth. And I think he's absolutely right about that. So this swings us back the other direction. Perhaps an encyclopedic knowledge of the context, historical and social context of a work is beside the point. And why would you say that? Because if the, if the author's perspective on his chosen time period, whether it be his own or one that he's setting his story in, is jaundiced or myopic or wrongheaded some way, 
then an accurate knowledge of that time period is going to be neither here nor there for an understanding of his story. Mm, I don't think that that's necessarily so. I mean, even still, in order to be able to understand the things that led him to interpret the world in the way that he interprets it in his novel or whatever it is that he's writing, um, you're not going to be able to get there unless you understand you know, when he was writing, who he was writing for, what gave rise except, to these comments. It strikes me that that reaches into a, a whole different subject altogether. It sounds like you're doing a little bit of, of um, personal analysis or psychology of the author in that context. No, I wouldn't really want to go that far. What you wrote on paper that you have, you're holding his words. Yeah, no, and but for example, consider words. Milton on his blindness. When I consider how my light is spent, you know, that sonnet. Um, yeah. It really does help us to know that he was writing from his own personal experience. And certainly the artwork is, is not merely biographical because it does touch on a human need to interpret his own circumstances. And it touches on the issue of the problem of pain, which is a universal situation, but it's anchored in a particular biographical scenario. And it helps us to understand what that scenario is. So, you know, that is particularly useful information. Or how about this? Um, Longfellow's uh, Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, that poem. The fact that that was written on the eve of the Civil War um, helps us to understand that Longfellow was actually saying more than just patriotism rah-rah. He I was think actually, what we're trying to say, though, is that you don't need to have a PhD in, in Civil War era history in order to understand it. Or a PhD in, a in Milton in order to appreciate the fact yeah, that that go, poem was written by a blind man. What Dad was saying a second ago is if the guy had a particularly jaundiced or skewed perspective on his own era, it's more important for us to know that than to have the right perspective on his era. Yes. Yes, of course. You get no arguments from me there. Well, the, the, the issue of, obviously, the issue of art versus artifact uh, is capable of producing some sparkling conversation. But I think <laughs> we end up right back where we, we started. But I was going to say that very saying, thing. You know, really, um, we would be remiss to, to neglect the historical elements or the artistic elements that they hang together. They're married. Right. And the idea that um, a work of art could be reduced to nothing more than historical artifact, it belies an impulse to, um, to capture that, to box it up, and put it on a shelf with a tag, as opposed to experience it and allow it to speak to you, uh, in which case it may actually change you in some mm -hmm. way or change your perspective. I wonder about the impulse behind each of the ditches that Ian mentioned a minute ago. And I, there was something that you said that I kind of want to tease out a little bit, that the, the risk we run by erring on the side of artifact is to reduce a work of art to, um, uh, to a, a, a lump of raw material to which syllogism should be applied. I know this about the author. I know this about the time period. This was the goal of the general person in the time period. The author belonged in the time period. Therefore, this is what he was trying to say. And we can sort of um, deterministically assign themes to stories based on when and by whom they were written. Right. Huckleberry Finn is about slavery bad. Right. And the, the, maybe the, the impulse behind that is, is maybe a pedagogical one. Mm -hmm. The impulse to, to see literature as a subject to be mastered, maybe as a, as a facet of intellectual history. Uh, the 1920s were a time of great upheaval and great intellectual unrest. Ergo, the great Gatsby. It's a, it's a symbol. It's an example. It's that, that's where that literature belongs in a sort of, intellectual history. 
maybe the impulse to, to read that way comes from this great weight of responsibility of teaching the young of, yeah. of making sure that they, that they get their literature and have a place to put it. Or maybe it's the fear that misinterpreting literature or using it wrongly is somehow more morally, ethically, spiritually dangerous. And there's some safety to us available in having a system that we can uh, put works of art in so that we can understand them in all their sweep and every piece is in its proper place. I wonder if the people in both ditches, um, that they're, it seems to me that they want to do something to the literature on both ends. And maybe that impulse comes from a desire to control. Um, you know, on the one hand, we're doing things to literature when we make it an artifact. We box it up neatly and put it on the shelf where it can't do any harm. <laughs> and on the other hand, if we divorce it from its historical um, moorings, we want to do stuff to the literature as well. We want it to mean what we think it should mean and be creative in our interpretations, right? Right. Rather than being an expression of its time period. Yes, it becomes or an expression an of a mind. Expression of our own urges or our own feelings and our own... Agendas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And both of those things seem to be urges that come from a desire to control um, right. everything in our own worlds. So what we would respond to both of those desires with then, and this is to say what we said earlier, which is you need to mix these two. Uh, we would say good reading is humble reading. Mm -hmm. mm. It doesn't Absolutely. try and do anything to the novel, but instead sits in front of it and attempts to learn from it. It receives. Okay, mm -hmm. so, you're, so you are um, a teacher then, either a homeschool parent, or maybe you're a classroom teacher, or maybe you're just you know, reading with a buddy. And he says, what is this book all about? How do you begin then? Do you begin by saying, well, the first thing we need to consider is America in the 1880s. You begin or, by reading the book and having a good time. Without any reference to its historical context. We're, I think we're at an advantage because we have Google at our fingertips. If like, what is it in the great Gatsby, the, the um the world series game that gets the the uh, world series of 1919 that got fixed yeah so when i get there and i'm like what in the world is he talking about i can be like look it up or when you're reading dante's divine well, comedy point, and you encounter some crazy make, person the point the point i was trying to make is that you is that your your first job is to encounter the work the way the author uh, wrote it to be encountered, which is to say, let him have the first word mm -hmm. instead of approaching the work with words in your mouth Yes, to speak at it or about it or near it. Let the author have the first word. Mm -hmm. And usually, and this, this is something we, we've said on this podcast, I know before, but usually um, what I like to say is we're dealing with some of the greatest communicators who ever put pen to paper. They're probably capable of making themselves understood. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. If we could just learn to shut up, frankly, yes. maybe we should just learn to shut up and have the reading process be a quiet process, first yes. and foremost. And then at that point, any amount of historical, if you've really have shut up and listened for long enough, then no amount of historical detail could really do violence to the to your interpretive process anyway, because the author has already gotten his oar in and had his way with you. Hmm. And if if because of the glories of the internet and Wikipedia. Uh, if Dante, I think you were about to say, Missy, is making some reference to some obscure Italian politician of the 14th century, you can boop, 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 and look him up. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. That is now bibliophile's lingo for looking something up. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. 
I like it. <laughs> I, I just gave Charlie, um, my youngest, who's a senior this year homeschooling, I gave him the red badge of courage today. And, you know, the only thing that I basically told him is who Stephen Crane was. And um, this is, this is um, modern American literature. Stephen Crane was a journalist and a realist. And, um, you know, you kind of know what was going on historically in the world in that time period. Now read it. And um, I don't think he needs a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could probably make an argument he doesn't even need that. Well, he could certainly come to Stephen Crane's Red Red Badge of Courage and read it first and then say, okay, who wrote it and when was it written? And that will help to inform his understanding of the thing, maybe. Mm -hmm. But but he doesn't need a lot. Not a lot Because of of what Ian was just saying. Stephen Crane was one of the great writers. He can probably make himself understood on his own terms. Yeah. Especially if he's already writing in your mother tongue. The, The main thing that's necessary when you come to Stephen Crane's work is that you look and listen. Mm-hmm. That's right. what Lewis said. You, you, the, first, the first demand that any work of art or any book um, places upon the reader is basically sit still, mm. pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know, If you're really paying attention, if you're really receiving the work of art and noticing the details and the way that that work of art has been put together, um, you will come to terms with the author. Mm. That is... A great way to close. The uh, you you said it from the very beginning, Ian. You said we're going to come down uh, to answer this question, art or artifact, by saying both, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, nobody can spin a simple answer out for fifty minutes like the Andrews clan. So I, I appreciate like you all participating. What I should have said is <laughs> we're going to after after many hard words and intense moments. Agree with one another. <laughs> of course. <laughs> On this particular subject, I think we do. Um, before we go, though, I do want to put a plug in, since what we're talking about is quietly listening to the author speak on his own terms. I do want to put a plug in for our other podcast, which you may or may not be aware of. It's called Radio Read Along, and it is a podcast where we read the classics to you 40 minutes at a time with no comment. We is That's the imperial we. Well, it's, it it's, it's, it's predominantly you. It's mostly me. <laughs> but we, and by we, I mean I, am having a great time um, reading the classics. We've got uh, a couple of novels already in the hopper with more coming all the time. And we encourage you to check out Radio Read-Along. We actually get together as a group, as a Center for Lit crew, every once in a while and talk about the reading in a separate podcast episode. So in the, in the uh, regular episode, you can do exactly what Ian and what Missy and Emily are suggesting, which is listen quietly to the author speak in his own voice. I do provide accents every once in a while. But check it out on the web, uh, Radio Read Along. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, let's bring this episode to a close. Thanks, Center for Lit Crew, for joining me as usual. It was sparkly. It was fun. Can't wait to do it again. But we will let you all go. Um, if you want, if you'd like to rate this podcast episode on, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. Also swing by the website if you have a mind, centerforlit.com, and see what else we're doing. Thanks for coming, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>